is our most intimate form of communication with God. And prayer ultimately, at the end of the day, is a, is a form of worship. Prayer is actually a, a picture of worship. And so as we move into week five of our, of our From the Mountain series, we're kind of looking at the things that Jesus actually teaches. And we've talked about the idea that, that we're hard-pressed to find anybody that would say that Jesus isn't a great moral teacher. But if we ever stopped and really paid attention to the things that Jesus said, and we began to live his words, then it would change everything. Because Jesus taught this sort of radical, countercultural way of life. And, and this morning, we're going to look at how Jesus actually teaches on the idea of prayer. Because, as you would guess, he's, he's really got something magnificent to actually say on, on the subject. And so this morning, we're going to be diving into the book of Matthew, chapter 6, as we explore the, the Sermon on the Mount um, and Jesus talking a little bit about prayer. Now, you've got to remember that the Sermon on the Mount, as we've talked about, is not a uh, sermon as to speak. It's not Jesus standing in front of a large crowd and giving us three points in a poem or whatever. It was, it was actually a discourse that started with just the disciples. The crowds were, were gathering all around, and so he went up to a mountainside, and he sat down with the disciples alone, and he just began to teach them about really what it meant to follow him. What life was going to look like if you were going to actually follow me. And then as often happens, the crowd kind of tracks Jesus down and it turns into this kind of large gathering of Jesus sitting with the disciples and Pharisees and, and people gathered all around kind of, of looking in. And, and, and we've talked about some of the things that Jesus has taught on, but this week he, he begins to really teach on, or we're going to look at Jesus teaching on prayer. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and grab it. If you don't have one, we've got some on the sides. We're more than welcome for you to take them. If you don't own a Bible, keep one of those. Or if you know someone that needs it, please keep it. Um, those are for you. But if not, just return it when you're done and, and we'll use them each, each week. We're going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 6 starting in verse 5. So if you've got your Bible, as we open up our time talking about prayer, it's probably pretty fitting that we should pray, right? Good. All right, let's pray. Father God, we are, are so grateful for who you are, and we're grateful that you, you care for us. And, and God, as, as we just heard, our, our hearts really cry to you, and we ask, Father, that you would hear our prayer this morning, and that you would begin to teach us about what it means to openly communicate with you, to really kind of say, God, this is who I am and, and who I want to be, and hear our cry. So this morning, before we even dive into God's Word, I invite you right in the stillness of this place and in your own heart, just to kind of open your heart before God. Just to listen and ask God to begin to whisper something to you this morning. God, teach me. God, whisper something. Just take a moment in this stillness and ask God to speak to you. And take just a moment and pray for someone beside you. Um, even if you don't know their name, maybe they're across the aisle or across the table. Just, just pray. Just say, God, we just want you to move in this person's life today. God, we love you. And um, we trust that you're going to move in this place. God, we don't invite you here. We know your presence is already with us. 
And we just ask you to move in our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to divide our text up into two sections this morning, five through eight-ish and then nine on. So we'll read the first part and then we'll kind of dive into the second part. And this is Jesus sitting on the ground with his disciples and his crowd of people gathered around. He begins to say this, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like all the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. It's interesting that Jesus actually starts his teaching on prayer with really a, a how not to pray. So this is what you don't do first. And I thought, you know, I was like, I was sitting around going, what are the, what's a really great illustration, a really great story on, on how we, we shouldn't pray? And so I, I, I thought of one of my favorite movies, and I thought I'd show you a clip as a classic example of, of perhaps what not to do. So, so take a look at this, and then we'll, we'll tear it apart a little bit. Get your hot buns, hot patooties. Wow, Dina, everything looks fabulous. Well, I'll tell you something, it's such a treat for me to have a home-cooked meal like this. Dinner at my house usually consisted of everybody in the kitchen fighting over containers of Chinese food. Oh, you poor thing. What, there wasn't enough food to go around, Greg? No, there was. We just never really sat down like family like this. Greg, would you like to say grace? Oh, uh, well, uh, Greg's Jewish dad, you know that. You're telling me Jews don't pray, honey? Unless you have some objection. No, 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 no. No, I'd love to. Pam, come on. It's not like I'm a rabbi or something. I said grace and many a dinner table. Okay. Oh, dear God. Thank you. You are such a good God to us, a a kind and gentle and accommodating God. And we thank you, O sweet, sweet Lord of hosts, for the smorgasbord you have so aptly lain at our table this day and each day by day, day by day, by day. Oh, dear Lord, three things we pray. To love thee more dearly, to see thee more clearly, to follow thee more nearly, day by day. My day. Amen. Amen. Oh, Greg, that was lovely. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. <laughs> I love that, that picture because the idea really is um, how, how do we pray, right? How do we, how, what is the call, really? I mean, and, and Jesus actually unpacks this idea by saying, here's how you don't pray. 
And I thought it was really interesting that that's how Jesus kind of started out. And, and it turns out he's actually doing something on a much bigger scale that we'll get to here in a second. But he kind of categorizes our prayer, our not to pray kind of life in two categories. And the first one is this. We don't pray to be seen, but we pray to the unseen God. So we don't pray to be seen by men, but we pray to a God who is unseen. It's really about motive and visibility. Actually, in, in chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is doing something much bigger. In 6.1, he's talking about giving to the needy. He says, when you give to the poor, don't announce it with trumpets so that everybody knows that you're giving. Instead, do it in the quiet place. You know, do it out of, out of a, a, the motive that says, I just want to give. And not telling everybody, hey, I just want you to know I dropped off a whole lot of clothes at Goodwill. Good. Just let everybody, everybody know. And, and 616, he's talking about fasting. He says that when you fast or when you, you do these religious kind of activities, the Pharisees stand on the corner and they disfigure their faces and they're like, oh, I'm starving. So that everybody will know that they're like super religious and they're fasting. And in this section of text, he says, when you pray, don't stand on the street corners in all of your robes and go on kind of babbling so that the world will know that you're praying. But instead, do it in secret. Now, you might be saying, well, I'm good there because I don't, number one, wear robes. And number two, I don't stand on the street corner and, and pray because I don't even like to pray in public at all, right? So you're saying, so I'm pretty safe there. But, but really, I, I think it's about something much bigger. It's really about the motivation of our spiritual life. Like, what motivates us? Jesus is actually talking about the idea of, of visibility. Do we do what we do spiritually to be seen? Because culturally, that's what drives us. What drives us is that we need recognition for the activities that we're a part of. Think about your workplace. If you're not recognized for how you perform, then you're not going to get a promotion or so on and so forth. So when the big project comes, you need the boss to know that you had your hand all over it. Right? I mean, maybe even in your own home life. I know that when I would do something as simple as, as want to wash Meredith's car because I love her. I need her to know that I washed her car, right? I can't just wash it. If it goes three days and she didn't notice, I'm like, hey, do you know I washed your car? She's like, yeah, I saw it. I was like, well, then say something. You know, because we want to have you kind of recognize that. I don't know if you guys watch Seinfeld. It's one of my favorite shows. But there's a whole episode devoted to the idea of the tip jar. Like, if you go to a restaurant, you order at the counter, and, and the person that takes your order, if you put a tip in and they see you, it counts. But if they don't see you put it in, the tip doesn't count. Because it's all about being seen putting the tip in. So it's not just about the, act, the idea of giving money. It's saying you need credit for the tip. I mean, our whole culture is really built around the idea of visibility. Is it really hard to believe that just maybe in our spiritual lives we've kind of made that leap? And we want people to think that we've got it all together spiritually. We want them to think that, that we really are a really good kind of Christian person. And so we perform. I mean, sometimes, maybe not all the time, but, but there's that danger of letting our religious lives turn in performance. I mean, it's a reality, right? The reality is, is that we want people to, to possibly see and say, man, that Treb, whew, that guy is a Christian. But Jesus says, listen, it's not about motive or visibility. It's about doing something for the unseen God. The second thing that we really see in that passage is, is really about authenticity. 
It's about the idea of being real in our prayer life and, and not playing games with God. And, and the truth is we, we do. We play games when we pray all the time. The pagans stood on the street corner and they used a whole lot of words. Oh, Lord of hosts of the smorgasbord and the bird of the air and the nesting fields. You know, we, they used these words hoping that their long-winded prayers would somehow be heard by God or by the gods. Well, we all kind of, of play these games with God. And I think these games kind of fall in two categories. They fall in the what we say category, and they fall in what the, we don't say category. The first category is really about we always try and make our, in our prayer life, make ourselves sound um, a, a little bit better because we're making an argument for God. You know, we're kind of letting God know that we've been working really hard, and so our prayer may go something like this. It may go, God... I know I really kind of blew it last week, but you know I've been working two jobs and, and things have been, been really hard and, and I'm doing the best that I can. And, and so we word our prayer life to try and show God as if we needed to plead our case before Him that we're actually doing the best we can. Because we tell God what we think He wants to hear. Which is we believe we have a God that wants to hear that we're trying really hard. God, I am trying. We play these, these kind of games that say, I'm going to make things sound a certain way so that I don't just go, God, I am a ridiculous failure. Right? That category of the things that we say. The category of the things that we don't say is really about what we don't tell God. I mean, do any of us really practice all the time full disclosure? I mean, even about the darkest and deepest secrets of our heart, do we really say those things out loud to God? I would say most of us don't, because when we say them, even in a whisper, they become real. And it's petrifying to be exposed. And the funny thing is that in our heart of hearts, we know that God knows. But we play these games, and we construct our, our prayer lives in such a way that it becomes a, some kind of show, either for the public or, or some kind of demonstration to God. So what's the why in the why not? Well, verse 8 says this, don't be like them, for your Father in heaven knows what you need before you even ask. Have you ever thought about that? That God knows. He knows that you blew it. He knows that you're going to blow it. He knows the details behind why you lied, cheated, stole, whatever. God knows. And He knows what you need before you ever ask. You know, like we have to, sometimes when we pray, we have to justify before God why we need something. God knows all of those things. So Jesus says, listen, I want you when you pray to actually go into that quiet place in your room and shut the door and pray to a God who is unseen. I don't think this is kind of a rhetorical um, concept that Jesus is saying. He's not, he's, I think Jesus is literally saying, go into a place where no one else is around and just you and God are there and lay your heart out and just lay it bare. So if we really explore how, how not to pray, right, we need to be seeking from this sort of, God, I want to be with you alone, praying to this unseen God, not putting on a show of, of visibility or out of a, a wrong motivation for the world. And I don't want to play games with you. I just want to bear my heart. We really are going to pray that way. Then, then what do we pray? How does that look? Well, Jesus actually has a, has a response to that as well. Verse 9 says this, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us from our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Sound familiar? 
The Lord's Prayer, as it's aptly called, is really the most popular prayer in all of Christianity. Rightly so, if you've grown up in a church um, anywhere, really, you've probably used it and said it, and it's been a part of, of what you do. There are songs about it you sung as a child, or there are songs used about it you sing as an adult. We say it in church, if not every Sunday, every other kind of Sunday in our traditional kind of church settings. And rightly so, because it's the very prayer that Jesus taught the disciples to pray. But have you ever really thought about it? I mean, what those words mean, the ones you learned as a child and have said over and over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, that's how I grew up. Every night, my dad would, would crawl in the bed with me and we would pray and he would say a line and I would say a line and he would say a line and I would say a line. And I never thought about what we were doing. It was just our habit of prayer together. But as you would kind of guess, there is a whole lot here. And this is where I really struggled with this text because technically I could spend about eight weeks going over every word in the Lord's Prayer. And somewhere down the road, we actually may do something like that. But, but for our time here this morning, I'm going to kind of take this 36,000 foot view. Because I really want us to understand what it is that Jesus is saying we should pray for and who we should pray to. Because that's really what the Lord's Prayer is about. It's about who we pray to and what we actually pray for. It's not a mechanical habit of saying words that don't have meaning. These words are deep. And if you really know what they mean, they will mess you up. Two questions that jump to my mind when I, when I read through this, and that's, who do we pray to? And what do we pray for? Now, the first one you may say, Trev, that's pretty ridiculous. Uh, who do we pray to? We pray to God. That is good. You are right. We do. But there's always something that makes it a little bit more complicated than that, right? Always. We're going to kind of just look at this thing line by line and just kind of see what jumps out at us. But the, the first idea is this. Who do we pray to? Our Father in heaven. Or who art? That's a word for living. In heaven, right? That's that opening line. It's really the address of our prayer. Our Father in heaven. Two things. First, the word Father. Have you ever really thought about what that means? That the idea that the God of the universe allows us to call Him Father. And that Jesus says we address our prayers to our Father. Not just Father of Jesus, Son of God, but Father of you and I. And it's not a gender thing, it's a relationship thing. It's saying that God, protector, provider, safeguard, lover of our souls, is accessible and knowable to you and I in such a way that we can call Him Father. The very God that hung the stars and formed the trees has a relationship with us that is accessible enough for us to say, Dad, I don't know what your relationship with your parent was like. I know what mine was like. My dad died when I was 23, but I look back and I say, man, I had the greatest dad ever. But I'm not naive enough to think that my dad wasn't without flaws and our relationship wasn't on some level broken. And whether your relationship is perfect or your view of your father was absent or was a horrible thing, the idea of God as father is the perfection of what that relationship means. That God is accessible, knowable, safeguard, rescuer, deliverer, provider, protector. That God is, is right here. And I love that picture. There's an old story, um, a fable of a, of a Roman emperor. 
that had just gone on this huge conquest. And he was riding back into Rome, and the streets were lined with thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And they were throwing paper, and they were, they were singing, and they were chanting. And, and this Roman emperor came riding in on this chariot in all of his glory. All of his glory. And in those days, uh, the Roman emperors were really kind of held and seen as a god. And he comes running, rolling in on this giant parade, and people are cheering. And, and up here on this platform... Is, is his family. It's his wife and his children and, and the close family members. And they're all up there and, and they're watching this thing happen and unfold. And the story goes that, that his son, this little boy, hops off that platform and comes racing down into the streets, through the crowd, into the streets. And as soon as he got close, a centurion, a guard, reaches down and grabs him and sweeps him up. And he says, what are you doing? You can't approach the emperor like that. And the little boy looked at him in the face and he said, he may be your emperor, but he's my dad. And I love that picture of God. Because God allows us to call him father. That he may be the God of the universe, and he is, but he invites us into a relationship where he lives as our protector, provider, safeguard, lover of our soul. So when we open our prayer, we don't say... God of somewhere way out there who is unknowable, we say, God, Father, who I am vulnerable before and who I know will protect me, who is in heaven, our Father in heaven. Carl Hamilton actually pointed something out to me this week that was really fascinating. And and once I spent some time kind of looking into it, it became really powerful. And I could spend a lot of time, but I'm just going to kind of glance over it. Um, you may not find it as interesting as I did, but I found it really powerful. And that's that in, in the Greek, that phrase, in heaven, is actually plural. It actually translates as, in the heavens, or better yet, in the heavenlies. First doesn't make that whole lot of difference, but as you start looking into it, there actually is something really important there. Theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard, who's a, kind of a modern day, he's a professor at USC, philosopher, theologian, credible mind. He writes this. He says that by actually, in our translations, making that plural word singular, it does an incredible disservice to our theology and understanding of God. Because as we read that passage, it says, Our Father who is in heaven, some cosmic location way out there, God who is in the heavens, the, the air that we breathe, the atmosphere, the very sky, we say, God, you are accessible. God, you are knowable. God, you are not some distant God that is way off up there in space that I can't see or know, but you are right here in my very presence. And the bottom line is that it's just good theology because God is here. In fact, we know that Jesus' name, Emmanuel, even means God with us. See, the God of the universe is amongst us. He's not... God up in heaven. So the God that we pray to is God, Father, protector, provider, safeguard, lover of my soul, who is noble, accessible, and right here in my presence. See, all of a sudden that changes everything. It makes God here and knowable. So that's the God that we pray to. Let's see this. Let's say, what is Jesus actually asking us to pray? Because it's actually kind of fascinating. So he says, our Father, who is in the heavens, the sky, the air, the very kind of presence around us, hallowed be your name. 
You know, that word kind of hallowed is really one that's kind of lost on us, right? It, it doesn't really find its way into our language very often anymore. But really the idea is just simply this. It means that name which is to be made holy or is to be recognized as holy, treasured, and loved. So our Father, our our God, our our safeguard, our protector, lover of my soul, who was very near right here, your name should be made holy, is treasured and loved. In other words, saying, God, you are who you say you are. Hallowed, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You know, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God in three ways. He talks about the kingdom of God as what was, what is, and what is to come. The idea is that the kingdom of God is from everlasting to everlasting. It's not something that comes in later or is happening just now. But the kingdom of God is ongoing. It's God's rule. And by praying for God's kingdom come, we're actually saying, God, I want your kingdom to invade my kingdom. And we have kingdoms, right? Our schools, our workplaces, our homes. Those are our domains, our kingdoms. We are praying, God, your kingdom come and invade and displace my kingdom. Now, I'll I'll tell you, be careful when you pray this one, because this one will mess you up. Because when we invite God to invade our very space, our very lives... Everything changes. So we say, God, your kingdom invade my kingdom. Your kingdom invade and displace my life. And your will, not my will, be done. We all want our wills, right? We want to be able to uh, have our life go the way that we think it should. But we're saying, God, I want your will over my will. See, God, your will be done on earth here your kingdom invading my world as it is in heaven. Heaven, they're actually used singular, interestingly enough. Give us today our daily bread. It's just talking about daily provision. God, give us today what we need today. Right? Give me enough to, to make it today. Notice what it doesn't say. God, give me today enough bread to last for a year. God, give me today enough food and finances to make it through the end of the year. Or God, give me enough today to last my whole retirement. We just say, God, today what I need, I trust that you'll provide. Most of us, we are not comfortable with that. We are not comfortable with looking at a God and saying, I believe you can take care of me today. Whatever that may mean. Food, water, housing, clothing, whatever. Life relationship, comfort. God, I trust today that you'll give me what I need. That's what that means. Give us this day, right now, our daily bread. In other words, I'm not looking about tomorrow. I figure tomorrow you'll take care of me too. But today, God, help me trust that it's not the end of the world, that I don't know how ends are going to meet. Because I trust you. But most of us really, when we wrestle with that, that's a tough one. Because we, if we really are praying that, we're really saying, God, you're big enough to take care of me. And most of us have such huge control issues. Um, it's really difficult to kind of turn that over to the Lord. But give us this day our daily bread, right? And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, most of us have grown up with one of two translations of that word, debts and debtors. It's trespass or trespass against us. The idea is really that neither of those words actually capture what that that Greek word means, which really holds on to a connotation of guilt. 
It says, God, forgive us our debts, our trespass, our sin. We are guilty, is what it means. So God, forgive us for our guilty life. The way that we do things that imposition you, fail you. But Jesus doesn't really stop there, does he? He goes, as we are forgiving, or as we forgive those who are guilty to us. See, this is a part of the prayer I think most of us don't want to mess with, because the reality is is that we have people in our life that we haven't forgiven, most of us. We've been hurt, and some of us have been hurt deeply. Yet we're calling on a God, asking Him, Father, Protector, to forgive us. Yet we have people in our very lives that we won't forgive. So Jesus says, forgive our debts, our guilt, our sin, our trespasses, as we forgive those. Can we really ask God to set us free and forgive us if we won't even do that? The truth is is that I don't know how badly you've been hurt, but I guarantee you, you've abandoned God in some similar fashion. Yet we call upon God to free us. The reality is, is that some of us in this room possibly need to make a phone call today. We need to talk to somebody. We need to heal something. Or at least let it go. Because it's hard to actually listen to these words of Jesus holding so tightly to what we won't forgive someone for. So forgive us our guilt, sin, debt as we forgive those. Listen to this, last two ones, and then we're, we're wrapping up. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So don't lead us into trials, God. Don't lead us there. But deliver us from the evil one. Actually, the word deliver is better translated as rescue, which I love. Because it's actually saying, God, rescue us from the evil one. Not just the big concept of evil, but that we actually have something that we need deliverance from. Rescuing from. And then most of us know the prayer to end kind of this way. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Actually, in all the early manuscripts, that's not in there. It was kind of added later. But it's a great little ending to this prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. You know, when we pray, we're called to pray with purpose. They're not empty words. And if we listen to the words of Jesus... And we truly, truly hear them. You will see the echo of everything he's teaching in the Sermon of the Mount poured into the Lord's Prayer. As we take a look at this thing up on the screen, I want you just for a moment to imagine and to try and pray these words alongside. 